Welcome. You are listening to Mountain View Scattered. This is an audio companion to our weekly church gatherings. It is a way to stay connected while you are away and to learn more about our community, how we can best reach and serve it. I'm your host, Wade. We have three themes in Mark that we've been studying together. A king, Jesus, his kingdom, which is here and not here, it's here and it's elsewhere, and the continual call to discipleship that Jesus is offering to all that he comes into contact with. This discipleship is to follow, to learn from the teacher, right? To follow and literally to follow the king into his kingdom, as it were. Our big idea today is pretty simple, okay? It's pretty simple. Jesus has authority over evil. And Jesus has authority in salvation. And then here's a throwback from two weeks ago. Where is your faith? Now, it might seem a bit rude for me to start off with asking, where is your faith? Okay? Uh, Wait, we just got started. How can you be asking us where our faith is at? Well, if you'll remember two weeks ago when we learned about the storm and Jesus is going across the Sea of Galilee with all of his friends, and even his fishermen friends think that this is a storm unlike anything else that they have ever seen. And yet, despite that, Jesus asks them when they are in fear and they are crying out to him, are you unbelievers? Have you no faith at all? The answer to that question for them was, actually, yes, right now we are unbelievers. And Jesus' answer to them is, I'm here with you. I'm here with you. It's an amazing thing. Today we're going to see Jesus coming into contact with another unbeliever. And yet some of us in this room may be tempted to be unbelievers as well specifically, not believing this passage. And what I mean by that is this. Okay, yes, this is God's word, but I don't know about you, me. I hear something like this, and I don't want this to be true because it's horrifying, right? It's horrifying. Now, for some of us sitting in this room, you might be hearing this passage, and you're saying, hopefully minus the pigs. Yeah, no, I I saw something like this just a couple of years ago, Wade. C.S. Lewis, a Christian thinker, brings this difference to mind in his book, The Screwtape Letters, which is essentially kind of a little playbook of Satan and his his hordes of demons. And C.S. Lewis in that book says this, there are two equal and opposite errors, mistakes that we can fall into with the devils. One is to not believe they exist. The other is to believe and to feel such an excessive, over-the-top, unhealthy interest and attraction to them. They themselves, that is, the devils, Satan, his demons, are equally pleased by both of these errors. And they hail 
They applaud, they celebrate a materialist, that is, someone that does not believe in things unseen, and a magician, that is, someone that believes in only the things that are unseen. Satan gets just as excited about both of these errors. Whether we focus on it all the time, and I think many of us hear this, right? So for instance, in my, in my theology class, um, this was, I think it was in last year's class, one of my students was talking about the sin of homosexuality. Uh, because we were reading Romans 1, and he obviously did not want to talk about all the other sins that were involved there. And so he decided to pick on this one sin and talk about how the demon of homosexuality was out in the world, and it was infecting people. Or we oftentimes hear about the demon of alcohol. Or we hear about the demon of this or the demon of that. Um, we don't see that in Scripture. In fact, so much of what we think we know about this unseen realm, about these evil forces, don't come from Scripture at all. In fact, many of these things are carried over from all of the cultures that we probably originally came from. They are what we call animism, or when we're giving life to something that has no life. Alcohol, except for microbiotics, I guess, uh, have, has no life of its own. Homosexuality is an idea, it's an act that people do, it's a lifestyle that people live a disposition that some people have, but it's not an evil force that's lurking out there in the world. When we start to attribute things like that to evil forces alone, we've fallen into one ditch, right? Oh man, here's another drunken guy trying to get on a horse's illustration, okay? We've fallen into one ditch. Or when we say that, well, you know, these things, this was all back in the day, right? And I've told the story of Martin Luther before. He's walking beside a poorly built wall and a brick falls off the wall. And he's certain that Satan was behind that wall and pushed that brick off and tried to kill him with it. And we say, oh, no, that's old, old thought. We don't think like that anymore. Both of these ways of thinking, of thinking can be dangerous for us. We'll talk again in just a couple of minutes a little bit more about that. In order to work our way through these 20 verses and make sure that we're understanding them and making sure that we understand who these verses are actually pointing towards, right? Not a demon-possessed man, not a demon or demons named Legion, not towards anything other than Jesus. We want to break down this event into some pieces that we can chew a little bit, all right? So we're going to be looking at three Three movements in the text. First, Jesus confronting this demon. Second, Jesus condemning and conquering this demon. And then thirdly, Jesus commissioning the man that was once oppressed by this demon. And then we're going to see two contrasts as well, or two things that are contrasted, that is shown how they are different. Who the man once was when oppressed by a demon, and who the man is now. 
So in verses 1 through 7, we see Jesus confronting, kind of. (laughs) He gets confronted at first, actually. It's odd in the text, the way it's described, it's as though this man has a battle that he is ready to fight. He comes at Jesus, approaches him. In fact, the language that's used is as though Jesus and this man are walking towards each other at a steady pace, like they're meeting on a battlefield and come face to face with one another. That's the way it's described in the text. This man in his demonized state seems to take quite an interest in Jesus. You'll notice that it was the man in his body, but something controlling his body. Something controlling his words. So we've tried to clear up some of this mud, but what does this look like, right? We use the phrase demon possession, but what does that really mean? Possession, in this case, doesn't mean that something owns you, but to be controlled by something. To be controlled, in this case, by legion, this demon that's speaking through this man. To give an example of that, um, I possess this pencil, okay? I possess this pencil. Uh, But the the truth is I don't own it. I'm going to go home today and Finnegan will probably steal this pencil and it will wind up in a pencil case and I'll get it back. In fact, I just found this pencil. I'd lost it for two years. It was in one of his pencil cases, okay? (laughs) I don't own it, but right now I'm controlling it, right? I'm, I'm making notes. I wrote out some illustrations with it today. I don't own it, but I'm controlling it. This is the way that it's working with this man and with this demon. He is literally demonized. He's being controlled by it. So how does this work? How did he become like this? Pastor, should I go to the bookstore today and find a book on demon possession and read it? No, I'm going to ask you to not do that. By and large, that's going to be very unhelpful. Here's what we can say. We can affirm that Satan is a fallen angel. And that when he fell, he took many other angels with him who followed him. These are these evil spirits. These are these demons that are at work in the world. As Ephesians chapter 6 remind us, finally... Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Again, the spirit, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We could go real deep with that but we're not going to right now. Instead, we want to look at what else we can affirm from Scripture. So we can say that this is true, that we're not, Jesus isn't wrestling against some hulk that's coming out of this graveyard. This is a spiritual enemy of God. As we saw together in 1 Peter, what is Satan trying to do? He's lurking around like a lion, seeking someone to devour. And as we learn from Revelation, what is, 
what is Satan's primary way of doing this? We see it evidenced with Adam and Eve. We see it evidenced in the book of Job. We see it evidenced in Jesus' temptation. Satan's an accuser. He just asks questions. He doesn't give answers. And he throws these questions out there. Eve, don't you think that, you know, you should do this? Jesus, wouldn't it be good for you to just go ahead and take that authority that is yours already? This is the way Satan works. In your life and in my life, which we do, we give in to these things. We give in to our own desires. We call this sin. We call this separating ourselves from God. And what does Satan do with that, right? Does he tempt us with things? Sure. But what else does he do? He then accuses us, right? He holds that out in front of us. Wade, you want to go to Jesus? Remember this? Remember that, Wade? So we can't say how this man got like this, filled with demonic activity, being controlled by it entirely, to the point to where he hates himself. He's beating himself with a rock until he bleeds. What we can say, though, and we could see this elsewhere in Scripture, we, we see it in 1 John 5.18, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. We're not talking about perfection here, but we're talking about willfully choosing ourselves all the time with no thought of God and His desires for us. But He who is born of God protects him, God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So we can say that this man clearly has no knowledge of Jesus up to this point. But picture it with me. Where we left off two weeks ago, they're coming across the water, Jesus' disciples are probably still scared to death of this raging storm, and what do they see when they get to the other side. They see this raging beast of a lunatic running at them from a graveyard where he lives. Where the locals have outcast him to because they're so tired of him terrorizing them and terrorizing the entire mountainous countryside that he lives in. In verse 2, we see that Jesus was met by, brought face to face with this stranger. And then in verse 6, we see that he came to fall at Jesus' feet. So what looked like an act of aggression was actually this demon with uncontrollable magnetism towards Jesus. Why? This is where we see Jesus condemning and confronting this demon. But why was he drawn to him? Well, we don't know exactly, but you might remember this. This was from week five of our series in Mark, okay? Um, back in Genesis chapter 3.15, we see God promise that evil would be defeated. We see our first shadow of the cross, that the promised one would come and crush the head of the snake, though he would be injured in the process. 
But then in Mark chapter 1, verse 13, we see Jesus' temptation. Well, we see his baptism, then we see his temptation, and we see this. We see that this defeat is made real. Jesus denies every ounce of, of selfishness that Satan tempts him with. And instead, he clings to the promises that he and God the Father have made together. He does not take his authority, but he receives his authority in the proper way, defeating Satan. But then we also see in Revelation Revelation chapter 19 and 20, the final defeat of Satan. So what is this demon doing? Well, realistically, I think what this demon is doing is he's admitting defeat, but he doesn't quite want to admit defeat. And it's funny, isn't it? In verse 7, he says this. He says, Jesus, please, in the name of your father, don't torment us. Right? What's, what's this demon been doing? He's been torturing this man. And yet they say, no, don't, don't torture us, please. Right? Don't, don't make us feel bad for what we've done. And please, don't cast us out. Why? They have a mission. They have a mission. And that mission is to confuse. That mission is to accuse. That mission is to tempt and that mission is to torment. And if they get sent out, what are they doing? Well, they're failing at their mission. And yet it seems as though this demon realizes that he, in fact, is already defeated. In verse 8, the story does get a bit strange. For he was saying to him, right? So the, the demon's saying, oh, just please don't torment me. Why is he saying that? In verse 8, we, we realize why he's saying this. Because Jesus was already saying, come out of the man. <laughs> and I, I, I can't picture this in any other way but a parent, okay? Right? Key in right now, everything that he does, he gets into the snack cupboard and he'll pull out a bag of biscuits and he's looking at me. He knows I see him, but he keeps sticking his hand in, right? And then, and then I say, Kean, don't do that. He freezes, moves his hand a little bit more. Kean, don't do that. He moves his hand. He gets the biscuit. He's like, ah, I've got it, right? <laughs> and he's reaching for dear life to get this biscuit, even though he knows that I've told him not to. Even though he knows that he's already defeated. I'm going to take the biscuit, I'm going to put it back in the package, and I'm going to lock the cupboard, okay? This is what always happens. And it's kind of humorous, at least to me in this passage. It's a dark humor. That seems to be what's happening with this demon. He's like, oh, Jesus, don't take me away. I'm just gripping onto this biscuit for dear life right now. Don't send me out of the kitchen. Let me keep doing what I'm doing. But we know that this can't be. Instead, uh, in verses 12 to 15, or uh, rather 8 to 13, we see that Jesus is condemning what this demon is doing. And essentially he's saying, I have already conquered you. Give up. Leave the man. And it's, Legion doesn't simply listen because Jesus is the hero of our story, right? He listens because he knows that he's defeated. 
Remember in Christ's temptation, all the accusations that were made about God's will for Jesus. And Jesus having everything already laid out before him. And yet Jesus denied himself. He did not take the power or the fame or the easy way out like Adam did. Jesus had been casting out demons from people all the way along in his journeys thus far. From his first proclamation of the good news. And we already mentioned in verse 10 how Legion has said, don't make me leave this country. Don't make me leave this region. Why? Because it's an admission of defeat. He had a place that he was supposed to conquer, and he has lost. Now, in case this story doesn't, isn't violent enough already, okay? <laughs> You've got Jesus and this man meeting head to head. You've got Jesus telling this demon to leave. You've got this man beating himself with rocks, breaking out of chains. Tara, you can close your ears for this bit. Jesus grants the demon's position uh, permission to go into these pigs. And what happens? The pigs all start running towards the cliff and they fall into the ocean, right? And they drown and they die. What a mess. What a mess. That is a mess. <laughs> um, I have a friend that used to work on battleships. And he said that when he was in um, the Persian Gulf, that sometimes there would be, he would, they would think that they were mines out in the water, floating in the water. Um, and actually what they were was these, uh, they were sheep that had bloated and then gotten a bunch of fungus and stuff on them and turned black in the water. And so from a distance, they would shoot the mines to see if they would blow up. And then if they just kind of popped and sank, they knew it was a sheep and not a mine, okay? <laughs> so needless to say, all these pigs falling into the ocean. What a mess. Why would this happen? What? Okay, I don't know why we did. I don't know why this is happening. This is a really strange story. But we do know that it's causing a mess, not only for the sea right there, but it's causing a mess for the people that own these pigs, right? That take care of them, that make money off of them. So we could be asking ourselves right now, hold on, wait, um, I don't, you don't need to go into too much detail, but why are there pigs here? I thought these were Jewish people. Okay, it's true. This is a historically Jewish area that has been taken over by the Roman Empire, and because of its strategic position, um, it's a port city. And so um, you have very skilled um, soldiers that live and work here. Um, and you have many Gentiles that are living and working here. Um, we actually don't know for sure what's up with this man. If he's a Jew or a Gentile, we presume that he's a Jew, but we don't know. Um, all that to say that there are pigs there because there's allowed to be pigs there, okay? <laughs> and someone's making money off of these pigs. And yet, as we see in other passages with Paul going around and healing a demon-possessed girl, um, does anyone seem to care that they just lost 2,000 pigs worth of money? No, actually. That's the strange part. 
Everyone's in fear over what just happened. They are amazed. In fact, the herdsmen go back to town and they don't send back lawyers and they don't send back soldiers. Instead, they say, you've got to see what just happened. And everyone was afraid when they heard what had happened and when they saw that the man was dressed and in his right mind. Okay, so just a reminder now, there was a crazy... Now, I use that phrase loosely, okay? Um, This man had been driven insane by a demon. That is not to say that all people that suffer from different kinds of mental illnesses are demon-possessed. They are not. But this man was. Here was this crazy Hulk man who, who lived in a cemetery and beat himself with rocks. A man who everyone feared, who was sent off to live on his own and hopefully die alone and not bother anyone anymore. Someone that the culture had shunned and given up on for good reason because he was disturbed and evil. This is who that man was. But now we see that this man is dressed And he's sane. He's in his right mind. On a deeper level, we see that this man who was ready to combat Jesus and the force that occupied him him, and was itself hell-bent on destruction is gone. And this man is a fully functioning image-bearer who is sitting at Jesus' feet, as Luke tells us in his gospel. So who is he? He's clothed in his right mind. I don't want to pick on him too much, but as a parent of young children, this is something that I much desire for my children, especially on a Sunday, right? (laughs) We've got a little bit more time on a Sunday before church. They're running around being crazy, and this is what I want to say every week. Go, be clothed and in your right mind, right? (laughs) and that's exactly what happens to this man he instantly becomes sane he becomes a civilized person who is sitting at Jesus' feet and is learning and as we're going to see is going to desire to follow Jesus this is a man that has been saved this is a man that was Strangely enough, by force, (laughs) evil was taken from from him. He was given a right mind. The gospel was declared to him. Repentance and faith were given to him. And he is now sitting at Jesus' feet, learning. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 to 21, we read this. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. This is what we are asked to do with this man. No longer um, regard him according to his flesh, to his previous way. Even though we once regarded Jesus according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, brought us back together to Himself, and gave us the same ministry, the ministry of reconciliation, bringing others back to Himself. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God, making His appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus later speaks to the Pharisees and He says, Pharisees, scribes, you hypocrites, you travel across the ocean to make one proselyte. (laughs) There's a rich irony in that. Jesus says it, why? Because he knows that the Pharisees are, are turning people to the law. He wants them to be forever condemned by the law and to never hear the good news. But what has Jesus just done? He actually traveled across the sea to make one Christian. He traveled across the sea, an awful sea, to make one Christian. Why? Because he's not going across the ocean offering law all by itself. He's offering good news to this man. This good news is you have been reconciled to God. You are a new creation. And now what does this man want to do? He wants to be commissioned. He wants to be sent out by Jesus. When Jesus sees that the the crowds are gathering and they say to him, whoa, 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 whoa. That was freaky what you just did. Get out of here. Jesus listens. He doesn't stick around. He doesn't start converting a bunch of Gentiles. He says, I'll get back on the boat. Why? I have no idea why. Right? I have no idea why. He wasn't seen as a threat in this Gentile area. No one thought that he was some, um, you know, victorious soldier king that was going to come in and take over the empire. And yet he backs away. And as he does, this man says, please, let me come with you. Let me follow you. And in a sense, Jesus is saying to him, you already are. Go back to your friends. Tell them of what has happened. I am giving to you the ministry of reconciliation. Tell them of what God has done for you. This man now knows where salvation comes from. Better stated, Jesus doesn't have authority in salvation. Jesus himself is salvation. And this man just experienced that. Why did it happen so fast? Like, why did this man just turn to Christ? We could guess all day long. Very simply, this man knew darkness. And now he has seen the light. 
he knows that people around him had kicked them out of, him, out of their lives, and yet this man, Jesus, accepted him in and changed him and made him new. Jesus knows this feeling. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 3, we see that Jesus was outcast, looked down upon and scorned, just like this man was. Why would Jesus travel across the ocean to make one Christian? Jesus knows what this man was going through, or he would know very soon, and he knew he would know. Also in this passage, we see a contrast, another contrast. This man who decides to follow and everyone else that says, go away. For each and every person that we talk to and that we share the good news with, this is a decision that is laid at people's feet. The gift of the gospel is laid at your feet. And there is a decision to make. Just like the residents of the Decapolis, they're going to tell Jesus to shove off. They in part see him for what he is, scary. <laughs> and in truth, they don't want that. They don't want change. But this man knew his darkness. And he knew that he needed change. This man was terrorized by a demon However, that darkness that he was surrounded in and trapped by, he had seen it all too clearly, unlike anyone else present that day. They couldn't understand that they were trapped in darkness and lost, and that they were being tormented by their own sin and by their own selfishness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 to 25, we read this. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Translation, a complex presentation of the good news empties the cross of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those that are perishing, like those present in the Decapolis. But to us who are being saved, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those that believe. This story is foolishness. Paul is saying that the gospel that we preach is foolishness. The outcasting of this legion, this multitude of demons from this man, and the death of these pigs is foolishness and frightening. At the cross, you and I see ourselves held up and we see ourselves as being incomplete. All of a sudden, we see ourselves as not being our own gods anymore. And it's frightening. 
We have just lost authority over our lives. Paul says that this is foolishness to the world. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What's our big idea? Well, two weeks ago, this week, and next week, we're going to see that Jesus has authority over storms, spirits, disease, and death. Jesus has authority in salvation. Better yet, Jesus is salvation. Christian, where is your faith this morning? Is it in yourself? Is it in your own ability? Is it in your own wisdom? Or is it in the cross of Christ? This man that was possessed knew precisely where salvation lied. And he knew where his faith had to be placed. It had to be placed in Christ. Thanks for listening. And remember that you were brought into the church by the saving work and person of Jesus. Also, that you are sent out to tell everyone about him. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode of Mountain View Scattered.